When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. TCL is a proud sponsor of the 1500 ESPN Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. For those who simply can't get enough talk about the Vikings, we present Bonus Chatter. Bonus chatter about your favorite team that's unscripted, unfiltered, and uninterrupted. This is another edition of 1500 ESPN's Purple Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Purple Podcast. Matthew Collar here, along with former NFL quarterback Sage Rosenfels. Sage, um, have you ever been involved in a tie? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think, I don't think so. Um, you know, ties are pretty popular in soccer, uh, and, and maybe they used to be in the hockey for the Minnesota fans, but, uh, no, I, not in my football career, college, uh, or pro. Uh, and, uh, I'm really happy. I think ties really stink. I, I think that the NFL needs to find a way. Um, you know, there's only 16 games in a year and there should be, you know, 16 winners and losers, I feel like. And I think, uh, with how much money is spent on the league, uh, you know, people buying tickets to a game, you know, nobody should be going away from a stadium or from watching a, you know, three and a half hour contest with, with this sort of confused feeling. Should I be upset? Should I be happy? Should I be sad? What, you know, what should I be? And you could tell in the post game press conferences, the players, I think almost everybody, was more upset than happy, right? Like mm-hmm. everybody lost. It seemed like yesterday, Aaron Rodgers was pissed until the Vikings players were pissed. Uh, it felt like a loss for everybody. And that just should not happen. I don't believe in a, in an NFL contest. Yeah. At one point, I think Kirk Cousins called it a loss and, uh, Stefan Diggs quote was it damn sure ain't winning, <laughs> which, you know, uh, that, that feel was very obvious from the uh, locker room. And, and I've, was saying yesterday to a couple people that it, it Lambeau Field is kind of weird where it's the only stadium that you walk outside to go down to the locker room, and that's just because it's old and, and that, but uh, where you walk over the concourse, so I'm looking down at all these thousands of fans leaving, and it was just silent. There was <laughs> There was just nobody was celebrating, but no one was upset, or there was just no noise. It was just everyone filing out with blank looks on their faces and i'm sure sage if that had ever happened to you you would have hated it right i mean you would have been really angry to have finished in a tie yeah it feels like a loss to everybody and you know i i guess the excuse from the nfl standpoint is you know maybe it's a sort of player safety thing 
But I don't think the players like it either. You know, of all the things that the owners and players can probably agree on is, you know, we, I said, we understand that, you know, you, you, you play football for seven quarters. There's going to be a lot of injuries, and a lot of issues there. But, you know, at the end of the day, everybody wants to have a winner and loser. And at, at some point here, we've had two weeks now in the NFL. We've had two ties. Uh, that just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's the one of the few things that the, the players association and the owners can probably get on board with of trying to figure out a way, whatever it is, try to figure out a way, put the ball on the 10 yard line. I don't care what it is, uh, to have uh, a winner and loser in each contest. I think everyone would be totally on board if you said, all right, after one period, after 10 minutes, we are doing shootout style we are doing the college football style and and that's how we're going to resolve this thing and, and even though that feels like oh man you played this long for that well the same thing in hockey with the shootout where well you had plenty of chances to win though and neither of you got it done so we've got to figure this out somehow i think that would be awesome i love when college football games go to the the shootout style i, I think it's super fun and I, and I think for NFL games, usually the kickers are pretty good. I, I would just eliminate the kickers altogether in mm-hmm. the, uh, in the, you know, I guess double overtime or whatever you want to call it. You know, put the ball on the 10 yard line and each team just gets as many opportunities as they get. You know, there, there, there can't be that many plays we're talking about here. We're talking about four for an offense. We're talking about four for the other side of the ball. And then if they both score, you do it again. So you put the ball on the 25. Now you're talking about drives and, all those types of things. Put the ball on the ten yard line. Let each team get it, and whoever scores, you know, the most t- basically a touchdown. And if they respond, they do. If they don't, uh, the game's over. So yeah, they got to find a way to have a winner and loser in these games. And and uh, I think it would be it add a ton of excitement to it. And I think yesterday's game, it would add, can you imagine, uh, you know, some sort of scenario like that when, in yesterday's game with the with the rivalry between the two teams and the fans. And now we say we're going out and. They always use a phrase, they always use this phrase, kissing your sister when you don't win or right. lose. I always think that's a loss both ways. So, you know, um, I, I seems like both teams lost yesterday. Yeah. And I always thought that saying was just weird. Just like, uh, okay. <laughs> so, like, who was the first guy that's that a, thought I of that? Pa- I think Packer fans invented that one. Yeah. <laughs> like, some, somebody was like, man, this feels just like when I kissed my sister. Like, what? What did you say, man? Uh, I, don't uh, know what that means. I, I noticed that change in inflection in your voice when you said kickers are, usually pretty good in uh those sort of situations but yesterday sage not so much uh with no and, and not Carson. just the, not just the vikings game i mean the, the the saints yesterday uh in the saints um cleveland browns game the cleveland browns kicker went two for four uh, i believe on extra points and over two on field goals and basically lost them the game left I, I believe something like 11 points on the board or something like that and uh, yeah, and obviously Daniel Carson, Car- Carlson, I, I mean, I, he probably has a job this morning. And will, will that last through the week? Uh, you know, that'll be an interesting story to watch as well. See, it's kind of like uh, old school yesterday where the kickers were awful. Like, even when I was growing up, if the kicker made like 70% of his field goals, would be like, yeah, we got a pretty good kicker. And now the guys are sharpshooters and it's 85% or more. And the guy that they got rid of, Kai Forbath, just on field goals alone as a Minnesota Viking, made 89% while he was here. I think it was 16 for 16 in 2016, and then or something like that, and, and then 32 for 38 last year, and they move on from him to go with the rookie. Now, I think that a rookie kicker is fine if you believe that guy's going to be the best kicker for you, but it was clear, I think, yesterday that the nerves really got to this kid, and I don't know what to do 
here, Sage. I mean, they watched these guys kick for the entire offseason, and they decided, well, this guy is a clearly better kicker than Kai Forbath. And in a way, it feels like you got to do your job, man, and you got to make a 35-yard field goal from the middle. But at the same time, if you believe he's the better long-term, it's a very small sample size in one game to just release a guy for. Yeah, and, and you know, kickers are... You know, they're paid to kick field goals, extra points, but also kick off. Obviously, you know, he's got such a strong leg. He generally kicks it out of the back of the end zone. And Forbath did not do that. So that's advantage Carlson. Uh, and, and, but you know what though? As you said, Forbath was extremely accurate during the games. And all I really care about are the games. I don't really care, to be honest with you, that Carlson is money in practice. He's right down the middle. They just see it all in practice. As Alan Iverson said, you know, we're talking about practice here and practice. You know why he Not said it? Because practice doesn't really matter. It's a way to improve for the game, but all that really matters is the game. So yeah, he can make as many as he wants in practice. Uh, what the, what the Vikings need is a kicker, uh, who can kick 85% in the games. And so, um, it's unfortunate. It's, it's a tough way to go. And we will see what happens as a story. You know, either they stick with him. I will say this, knowing the, the Will family uh, and, and sort of how this organization is run. Uh, we were talking about, you know, the way they sort of hire and fire people in general. Uh, they're very generally very patient with employees. They're generally, uh, you know, pretty loyal, uh, I, I believe, to their employees, to their players, to their to, to their coaches, uh, to their upper management people. They sort of give them the benefit of the doubt. They when they have good people, they want to keep those good people. So. Their patience is going to be very tested, obviously, last night coming home from that game and, and this morning as we see what unfolds here. And I also think that when you spend a draft pick on him and you move up to draft him because you liked him so much, you're just going to be more apt to give him more time than you would for a normal kicker that you had just picked up off the street. Otherwise, you'd just be going out and finding someone else because, well, yeah, I spent 650000 so we'll just get the next guy. I think that that kind of makes you feel like you need to give that player more time. Did did guys in the locker room look at a kicker when he would miss big kicks and, and like, want to just help him out or want to pump him up or, I mean, what? Or just not look at him ever? I mean, it seems like on TV you always see the guy just standing all alone with his helmet on looking very sad with no one around him. I'm just curious about how inside the locker room that was treated. I think it really depended on the kicker. And, and I'll say this over, I would, I played for five different teams, uh, over my 12 years and some kickers players liked and some kickers players did not like. And, and we all know kickers are a strange bunch. Shoot, all NFL players are a strange bunch. Uh, I, you know, if the players really like Daniel Carson just in general as a guy, as a guy, they, you know, they want to support, they will. If you sort of a strange guy in the locker room that just you know, isn't, isn't really likable, they'll be like, well, you know, what the heck, dude, make your kicks. So it really does, in a strange way, uh, hopefully Daniel Carson's a really likable guy for his career uh, uh, possibilities going forward here. Because it really does help. It all, it all depends on if the guy's just a, he's a hard worker and he's just a likable guy. You know, a lot of kickers don't really realize their sort of significance on a team. I think, you know, there's kickers that I used to, talk with in locker rooms or on the sidelines and they're like second questioning our offensive and defensive coordinators and and i was like listen dude stay in your lane you know like you don't know anything about football just kick the ball you know and then there's other guys who understood sort of their role in the football team 
And uh, I think players sort of liked those types of guys more. I think it uh, reminds me of like uh, backup catchers in baseball where if you're a good dude and you can just sort of do your job back there, you can hang around for a really long time. But if you're a jerk, even if you're better than all the other backup catchers, you're, you're not going to be around because there are just so many other guys who could be the backup catcher for the team. And I think that's probably the case for the kickers. I mean, last year they had a guy named Marshall Kane who they brought in who kicked real well in the preseason, didn't get a job. I mean, Kai Forbath is still a free agent. Dan Bailey's still a free agent. So there's always five kickers lined up to be the next man. I do think my impression of Daniel Carlson is that everyone does really like him. And they look at him and they watch those practice kicks that go 62 yards or something. And they've got plenty of distance. And they think, okay, yeah, this is this is why we have this kid. It's just his his first attempt at big kicks went really disastrously. But if I were to put money on it, I would say they keep him. Um, to move on to football things that happened beyond the kicker, Sage, I, I know that you were <laughs> intrigued by the end of regulation, and there's a bunch of things that we could talk about here because the game was so back and forth, it was wild. Um, but Aaron Rodgers leading a potential game-winning drive for his kicker to let it go, that stuck out to you. Yeah, I mean, you got to realize, you know, you play the, an entire game, and the Vikings... You know, they got behind, they slowly and they fought their way back, uh, despite, you know, the, the interception, which was not Kirk Cousins' fault. It was Laquan Treadwell's fault, obviously, there, but they slowly fought their way back. The defense did a phenomenal job. Uh, you know, they gave up some yards yesterday, uh, but they, and they gave up some points, but they held the, uh, the Packers many times to a lot of field goals. Uh, and, and that was, you know, that, that those, those are tough. Those are tough to do. They did a great job with those, but for the Vikings to come back, uh, for Cousins to lead that drive down by eight points uh, was almost miraculous. I mean, all the things sort of had to go right there at the end, you know, getting the call, making some big plays. The throw and catch to Adam Thielen for the touchdown was amazing. Uh, the, 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 the timing uh, and the execution of that sort of, it wasn't even a slant, it was a one, sort of this one-step slant uh, and then fade route to Stephon Diggs for the two-point conversion was absolutely beautiful. And then the Vikings got lazy. Their defense got lazy, in my opinion. Um, you know, the very first run, you know, the, the, the Packers have, I believe, 40, uh, you know, they have 31 seconds. They have 31 seconds left. They have no timeouts. Uh, and they got to go, you know, roughly 40-some yards to get in field goal range. And that's exactly what they did. They went 41 yards, really on three plays. It was four plays, but one was a spiked. So the first play was an 11-yard run by Jamal Williams. That's unacceptable. That may have been that may have been the longest run of the day for the Packers. So you, 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 listen, you know they're gonna, probably going to throw the ball, but if you can just run the ball and get a first down, now now Aaron Rodgers goes, okay, they're going to give me something. Now now I got a little more breathing room. Let's make something happen. So then you get let the guy out of the pocket, which is again unacceptable. You cannot let Aaron Rodgers out of the pocket. That's where he makes magic happen. So they let him out of the pocket. He finds. Uh, the tight end, Jimmy Graham, for 27 yards. They allow him to get out of bounds. All right, and two sort of three uh, unacceptable things on that one play, letting him out of the pocket, let Jimmy Graham open, and then letting him out of bounds. That's three bad things on one play. And then when they're when you're covering the sidelines there at the very end, even to allow a three-yard completion on a quick out, that is a huge no-no. They, that just sort of seemed like laziness uh, you know, by that defender on that play as well. So – I just don't see like a Bill Belichick 
style defense allowing that to happen. You know, in 31 seconds, uh, really 27 seconds, allowed a team to go 41 yards to set up uh, a game losing field goal or game winning field goal for the Packers after all that work you did during the game. You know, you, you fight and scratch and claw for 59 and a half minutes and then to give up those yards that easily there at the end. I find completely unacceptable. Well, it didn't surprise me that Aaron Rodgers was able to make a couple of throws because he is who he is. Uh, but the 11-yard run that you mentioned, I, I feel like that's a classic thing that every team does every time when they're not sure if they're going to be able to make something happen there. And so it's like, okay, if we delay handoff here and get two yards, then we'll just go to the end of you know regulation or we'll just go to half. But if we get 10 or 15 in a big run, then we're going to start going for it and pick it up. I mean, that that's like one-on-one. That happens all the time, and, I, and it almost looked like they weren't ready for that, that they thought that Rodgers was going to throw the ball there, and that sort of kicked it off. And it also speaks to just how crazy this game was, that it could have ended right there, and if not for icing the kicker, it does end right there because Mason Crosby uh, made the first one, and then but that was iced and it didn't count, so then he misses the second one. But there were so many times in this game, Sage, where when the the teams go home at the end of the day, the Vikings on that one are going to say, whoa, we really dodged a bullet there. And then there are other times where they're going to say, yeah, but our kicker also missed and we made mistakes. It just that was one of the wildest games from the fourth quarter on that I can ever remember. It was. and I think that's partly the reason why both teams felt like it was a loss, because mm-hmm. both teams probably each had about three three chances where they felt like they could have won the game and uh, and, they, and both of them failed sort of at that exact point at where the execution needed to happen. Um, yeah. As you said, going back, you know, when the, when the Packers got the ball there near the end of regulation, what generally an offensive coordinator do a head coach does a quarterback does is, you know, if you drop back from your own 25 yard line and you, know, you throw an interception, you get a sack fumble, you really push the envelope. You, know, you don't have that much time left in the game. And more bad things can happen in those situations than good things. So what do you do? You throw a screen, maybe you throw a wide receiver screen, maybe you run a draw or uh, just a handoff, and just see if you can get a cheap first down to sort of get the things going. Right. The Vikings can't allow that to happen. They allow that to happen because then once you know Aaron Rodgers is out near the 40-yard line, the whole thing opens up for him. We all know. He only needs a, a you know one play to get the ball 25, 30 yards downfield with that arm that he has, mm-hmm. and then the Vikings allow that as well. So you, really, it all starts with that first play. They always talk about two-minute drills. It starts with the first play, and for the Packers, they got 11 yards on an easy run, uh, and the Vikings made, made it easy for them. So I'm curious, because this was a big factor yesterday, about the perspective of the quarterback and play caller in these late-game situations. So Aaron Rodgers, I mean, he's been with his coach for a very, very long time. I know they made some tweaks to their coaching staff, but he's all set in those sort of situations. He knows exactly how they're going to approach them, and it's probably formulaic for him in a lot of ways. But Kirk Cousins is working with a, a new offensive coordinator for the first time, and you and I talked a little bit about this, about adjusting to John DeFilippo and what he likes and certain tendencies and what Kirk Cousins likes. But yesterday... Aside from one bad pass that was intercepted and then called back, and we'll get to that a little later, uh, John Filippo and Kirk Cousins seem to be very much on the same page with a lot of different plays there, and I think you walk away from that game going, yeah, this relationship looks like it's it's cooking pretty good after after two games. 
It does. And that's very, that you just call that part of the positive side of the game, uh, you know, for the Vikings fans is William one, just the fact that Kirk Cousins played as well as he did, thrown over 400 yards, but, you know, really, really uh, efficient in that ball game. Uh, did a great job, you know, uh, controlling the, the game and then, ha- and, and, and protecting the football. I said, other than that long pass there at the end that was called back, he did a phenomenal job. He ran, you know, multiple times when the pocket broke down. Uh, he was extremely accurate on a, on a lot of throws. You can tell immediately he's got a great rapport with uh, his two best receivers and Diggs and Thielen. That it's, it, it is interesting with Adam Thielen. Doesn't it just seem like quarterbacks just like throwing the ball? He, he's always on the same page with his quarterback. That mm-hmm. says a lot about a receiver when you're just always on the same page with his quarterback. He was on the same page with Sam Bradford. He was on the same page with Case Keenum. And very quickly, he's already on the same page uh, with Kirk Cousins. So, you know, the, the nice thing, we haven't really brought up his name much, but, you know, the, the, with, with John D. Filippo being new, with Kirk Cousins being new, the person in that quarterback room that's not new is, is Kevin Stefanski, the, the quarterback's mm-hmm. coach. Yeah. I think there's a big advantage there to when you come into the room, because usually coordinators are, are spend a lot of time in the quarterback's room as well, uh, that the quarterback's coach can talk about uh, the players that were there in the past, the positives or negatives, you know, the routes that they're they're good at running, concepts and those types of things. So I want to give Kevin Stefanski a little props there as well for sure getting both those guys cut up to speed. Uh, it's pretty obvious that, that Cousins feels very comfortable uh, with uh, his new offensive coordinator and his whole new offense, you know, right off the bat. He, he did a really nice job executing throughout that ball game. And, and, and really, even though they didn't score a lot of points, uh, during sort of the, the regular aspect of the game, the first three quarters, when it comes crunch time, and that's when you find out a lot about, uh, you know, the organization of your offense and your passing game. And things looked really, really good, uh, despite the fact that Cousins is new and his offense coordinator is brand new as well. So more Sage Rosenfeld's uh, trivia here. How many game winning drives slash fourth quarter comebacks did you have in your career? Do you know? Ooh, that's like, I mean, as a player or just, I, I would make to say as a player, as a player, um, yeah. it's a good question. Probably the, one of the more, uh, uh famous, uh, there, there was two games that I played in and we had these sort of incredible comebacks. When I was with the Dolphins, we're down 23 to three going to the fourth quarter and Gus Farratt was the starter. He was a, also a Vikings uh, a quarterback. Jason Garrett was my quarterback coach and Scott Linehan was my coordinator and, and uh, Nick Saban was the head coach, and, and Gus got a concussion. I went in. We ended up scoring three touchdowns in the fourth quarter. I, I threw a fade route to Chris Chambers uh, from Wisconsin. Good receiver. Um, with, with about four or five seconds left in the game to win it. So that was one of the probably the, one of the highlights of my career. And then there was another game when I was with the Texans, and we were playing uh, against the Tennessee Titans, a, a fairly well-known game in, in Texans lore, where we were down. I think like 33 to five is a very strange <laughs> score, maybe 35 to three, very strange game. And, and I, I ended up throwing four touchdowns in the fourth quarter, bringing us back, getting the lead with 50 seconds left. And then we relinquished that lead on the last second field goal, uh, by Rob Baronis, uh, of the Tennessee Titans. And so his eighth field goal of the day, still an NFL <laughs> record. So that was a, that was a wild, two wild games there. And, uh, you know, in the NFL, you're never truly out of it if you've got, uh, you know, a quarterback that can, can make some plays happen and receivers who can, uh, who can go up and, and, and catch balls. And it all starts off with that first, you know, that first touchdown drive, though, that first one, you know, get the ball rolling. The other team gets on their heels a little bit. They play a little conservative and you get the ball back and, 
you next thing you know, you've got a, a snowball effect. And, and uh, you know, the Vikings, I think their offense sort of saw some of that yesterday. So you are credited for two fourth-quarter comebacks and game-winning drives. And coincidentally, uh, neither one came when you started. They were both given in 2005, which is the game that you mentioned, and both came off the bench. So you're basically... Yeah, the, I guess the Mariano other one Rivera. probably would have been... Uh, I'm sorry, the other one probably would have been a New York Jets... The New York Jets game, I was with the Dolphins. If that, you're talking about two in 2005. I think we yeah. were... Yeah, came, came off the bench around halftime. I think Gus broke his finger or something. And I believe we were tied and maybe losing going to the fourth quarter. And, and, uh, I think threw a touchdown pass to Marty Booker, uh, for, for the mm. game winner in, in that one, the old Chicago Bear. And, uh, yeah, you know, coming, coming back was one of my things you were talking about earlier, you know, with, you know, we were talking about likable kickers or likable backup catchers. Mm-hmm. There's also a huge likability factor with backup quarterbacks. And, uh, you know, they, they, they like those guys who are just good teammates and good in the locker room and, and good in the community, all those types of things. You know, the, the, that can get you as a backup type of guy. That can get you years and years and years, you know, in the NFL. Let's just say, you know, nobody liked Ryan Fitzpatrick and he was just sort of a jerk. He'd be <laughs> right. out of the league by now, but he's yeah. such a likable guy. We saw it in Tampa yesterday and now he's playing great football. So, uh, um, yeah, being a likable guy is a, is a backup quarterback. You know, starting quarterbacks don't need to be likable because, <laughs> right. you know, if you, if you don't like uh, Tom Brady, who cares? You know, you don't like Aaron <laughs> Rodgers, who cares? You know, that's your problem. You know, the guys, you know, <laughs> yes. guys are great, but being a likable backup, that's, uh, that's about 50% of the, uh, of the job description and being a backup quarterback. Yeah. I know it's, uh, that's one of the reasons that they make good coaches like Jason Garrett or they make good broadcasters like uh, yourself or uh, Dan Orlovsky, I know is, starting a career and Orlovsky was one of those guys where people would be like this this guy plays like this guy's in the NFL like yeah and he's really smart and it seems like he's a really affable guy and that's what you want you want your backup quarterback to be able to run the scout team right who's going to help out your defense each week who's smart enough to pick up on all those concepts and who can support people throughout the week and help his quarterback you know last year Teddy Bridgewater when he was a backup he was helping Case Keenum on the sideline spot different things that he saw in the defense. So even when Bridgewater was forced to take that role, he was still trying to contribute as much as he can. So it, it it's one of the reasons that on this podcast we are fascinated by backup quarterback Sage. And I love that Gus Farratt made an appearance several times already today. <laughs> well, and, and that, let's add to it that generally backup quarterbacks don't stay on one team for their entire career. You know, mm-hmm. there's. I like to use the phrase journeyman backup quarterback. And what, what that generally means though, is you're around a ton of different offenses and a ton of different coaches and, and, and quarterbacks. And you get to see this wide variety uh, of offensive systems and the details and different types of plays that are run and, and how teams, uh, you know, uh, uh, manipulate protection schemes to pick up di- different blitzes and things. When you're in just one offense your whole career, you really just sort of know that offense really well. But when you're that journeyman backup type, uh, you get a sort of a, a little flavor from all over the place, and that can add a lot of value to not just the quarterback, but even to the coaching staff. Uh, if, they, say, a coordinator or quarterback coach you know, really uh, is open to some of that input you know, from their starter and backup quarterback. And that's why backup quarterbacks always welcome on the Purple Podcast because there is so much knowledge there. I even had a practice squad quarterback, Matt Blanchard, come on who happened to be a backup for Andrew Luck, Cam Newton, and Aaron Rodgers at a different time. So he gave his awesome perspective on what made those guys great. Um, 
bringing it back to yesterday's game, I'm curious from the quarterback's perspective, Sage, the Clay Matthews hit that really changes this entire game because if Clay Matthews isn't flagged and it's just an interception, we're talking about a lot different with uh, Kirk Cousins and maybe even saying that, hey, he didn't come through in his first shot at Lambeau, but instead that's how you know the cookie crumbled and he was great after that. Uh, but that Matthews hit, Eric Hendricks hit, Sheldon Richardson's in week one. These defenders have no clue. And when you look at their face, when you ask them, they have no clue what they're supposed to do now when they're hitting a quarterback. And I think even quarterbacks are probably like, yeah, we want our guys to be able to at least hit the guy because he's an NFL player. Well, and you want your, your own, when you're a quarterback, you want your defensive players to be able to go hit the other quarterback, right? And right. Listen, quarterbacks don't mind being hit. They, they, they were, they're tough today and they've been tough, uh, since the game started. And it's a, you know, it's obviously a very unique position, but this is where I hate it when the NFL decides to make, uh, rule changes based off of like one play that happened the previous, you know, year. What's, what's, yes. what there is irony here, by the way, is that the, the Packers, uh, you know, wildly complained about the Aaron Rodgers hit last year with Anthony Barr that, that, you know, you know, cost him his season really cost the Packers their season. That was one play. Uh, and it was a slightly late, if you want to even say that, you know, you know, hit on the quarterback. So they make this, you know, new rule to really try to protect the quarterback. And, uh, it was bad in the preseason. Now it's bad in the regular season. It's just not a, not a good rule at all. I think you can really tell, and they, they use this, I can't remember what the word was yesterday, but they use this really w- weird, uh, uh, phrase to describe, you know, basically, uh, lifting up the quarterback mm-hmm. and then sort of, you know, slamming him down. I can't remember what they called it yesterday. Some strange term. I, it didn't happen with Kendricks. It didn't happen. I don't believe with, uh, w- w- with Matthews either. So, uh, you know, we, we know when you're really slamming the quarterback with all of your weight on purpose, you, you can see that. Uh, you know, when you slam him into the turf, uh, and really almost meant to injure the quarterback and put all your weight on him. What, but both the, 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 uh, the, the defenders did yesterday to me is perfectly fine. It was mm-hmm. actually textbook. It's what you would want to teach, you know, a, a young high school kid. Bring it, bring it with your shoulder. Keep your head out of it. You know, and you're supposed to, you're supposed to drive through, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the offensive player. That's what they teach. That's, that is how you tackle. Uh, what they're asking of these guys is impossible. It's dumb. Uh, it's, it's, you know, sort of, it's sort of cost, uh, the, the Packers, the, the win yesterday. It's, it's, uh, they shouldn't, in my opinion, the referees should not have that much leeway, uh, to have these sort of opinion based mm-hmm. flags shown. It's, there's so much opinion in that. And with all the hits, uh, that occur in a ball game to say those were somehow you know, unnecessary or unsportsmanlike or whatever you want to call it, I think is just nonsense. Those are bad calls. I hope that the NFL tries to change that because there is a big, there's a, there's a big difference between what we saw with the two guys yesterday who were flagged and when, you know, a, a defensive lineman defensive end truly comes in, picks up the quarterback mm-hmm. and really sort of slams him and puts all his weight on to try to injure him or, or, or you know, break his shoulder or something like that. I just don't want the toughness value there to be diminished because I grew up watching John Elway and Jim Kelly and Dan Marino and a lot of the great quarterbacks that and maybe they didn't throw for 5,000 yards every single year in part because they were getting beat up a lot but these were these were tough guys and I think that there is a 
balance between, yeah, I don't want my quarterback out all the time because that's not helping the game at all. And we saw last year NFL ratings dipped in part because there were so many quarterbacks injured. And I think we're going to see the ratings go up for these national games when you have your better quarterbacks playing in those games because they're just more watchable. But at the same time, I don't want it to be a position where somebody can be soft and get to survive in the NFL and have a lot of success because you've got the referees protecting them. There's got to be a happy medium there, and it was certainly not on display yesterday, and it changed the way that whole game went. Um, Well, there's a huge aspect of playing the position of quarterback and shooting. You know, I I train, you know, middle school, high school quarterbacks, some of the best kids in the country uh, during the spring and the summer. And there's a, a major, you know, conversation that we have of, of being tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and being tough a lot of times isn't going out and running somebody over. Being tough is taking hits uh, and taking some really tough hits and getting up and, and not blaming your offensive line, not being discouraged right. uh, and, and accepting the fact that's, that is your part of your job uh, is taking just brutal hits, still stepping the throws and, and sort of taking one, you know, right in the chops. And, uh, yeah, I don't like it as a former NFL quarterback. And listen, I, I like protecting the quarterback in certain ways. I like it when they're not allowing guys to go right down to their knees or hit, you know, put the quarterbacks in the head. They're, you're really vulnerable back there. Uh, but you also gotta be able to, you know, be a, you know, prove it to your teammates. You're a tough guy and, uh, that you'll take some hits to the team. And, and I said, there's defenders out there. They got to do their jobs as well. And uh, they got, you know, uh, chase down the quarterback and, and hit the quarterback. And I, that's all part of the game. It has it always has been. And I think it always should be. Last thing for you. And I know we've gone a little long here, but it's been a great discussion. Um, Laquan Treadwell, is it time for the Vikings to just play two tight ends all the time or put a fullback in the game? I mean, Stacy Coley doesn't look like he's going to make an impact either. Uh, I've, I felt yesterday, Sage, like they were missing Jarius Wright. And I know that that's. Not a star name or anything, but Jarius Wright was a guy who would make 17 catches and all 17 would be in big moments and he would catch everything that was thrown at him and he knew all the routes and he was always on point. And and it feels like with Treadwell last year, he made a little bit of progress, but that he's kind of stuck now. I know he gets a touchdown catch yesterday, but it was still, it was still a bad day and it still looked like routes were being run wrong and. He's dropping passes. It, it just, it's time to kind of pull the cord on this, right? There's, there, they got, I don't, you know, they're, they have to do something here. I'm not, uh, it, it's, again, it's unfortunate. For how many hits, uh, uh, Rick Spielman and Mike Zimmer have, um, connected on, I, I should say, with the NFL draft. You know, they've had a lot of great hits, not just in the first round, but, you know, finding guys late, you know, like Diggs and Thielen who are, you know, undrafted or your fifth or sixth rounders. They've, they've done a phenomenal job, but there's also some misses in there. Mm-hmm. Laquan Treadwell is obviously a huge miss, you know, in this game. You look at the stats. I mean, Thielen had 12 catches on 13 targets. That's All right. Stefan Diggs had nine catches on 13 targets. Rudolph had seven catches on eight targets. All right. Treadwell had two catches on six targets. Mm-hmm. All right. So the third wide receiver position in today's NFL is basically a starter. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, it's not the, the old days where you lined up with a fullback and a tight end or even two tight ends and one wide receiver. And, and you played the whole game with one or two wide receivers. Yeah. The, it seems like probably half of the uh, plays in an NFL game are with three wide receivers. It's a huge. Uh, it's hugely important. It's also hugely important for a defense to have a really good, you know, nickel, you know, cornerback in there because, you know, he's the third guy coming off the bench mm-hmm. and, and they're huge on third down. 
that so yeah jarius wright was you know he wasn't flashy uh he wasn't a guy who you could say had you know tons of talent and really blew you away but he was consistent and dependable and when you're looking for a third wide receiver you want consistent and dependable he may not have all the flashiness of Stephon diggs or or uh, the things that Thielen does uh, but you wanted a, a consistent, dependable guy on third down. Uh, and, you know, Treadwell is anything but consistent right now with some of his routes that I've seen him run when I watch the all 22 stuff. Uh, and obviously the drop passes, you know, yesterday, a couple, you know, huge ones, obviously one being, you know, an interception at a key moment that, you know, very well probably should have cost the Vikings the game yesterday. So again, what are they going to do there? You know, Stacy Cole, the answer. Uh, do they have something, you know, after him or even on the practice squad? Do they even think about going out and trying to find somebody else, which is, you know, which is really hard to do once the season has started. Mm -hmm. You know, I always like to say you you don't want to, you don't want to learn how to swim in the in the middle of a river, right? (laughs) And that's you know sure where we are right now, going to going into week three. So um, it is what it is at this point, and you you hope you just I guess you you just sort of hope that either uh, Stacy Coley steps up. Or, or Treadwell get some th- things figured out because his welcome in Minnesota has, has been on thin ice for a little while, uh, and it just got thinner yesterday. Sage, awesome stuff as always. Look forward to connecting with you in a couple of days again. Break down some more football. Sounds great. All right, and thank you all for listening to the Purple Podcast.